from the medical board saying, any physician in California who writes an inappropriate exemption for masks or other COVID-related measures will have his medical license subjected to investigation and disciplinary action. So for a physician, just to help you to understand, this kind of uh, threat hanging over your head is worse than the threat of getting fired. If I get fired from a particular healthcare organization, I can go to another healthcare organization or go start a private practice. If I lose my medical license, I cannot practice medicine, okay? That's how serious this is. The letter never defined what might constitute an appropriate or inappropriate mask mandate. So I have no idea if I write a mandate for a kid with a severe anxiety disorder that's worsened by the wearing of a mask. Is that, is that gonna subject my medical license to disciplinary action? Um, physicians in California interpreted the phrase and other COVID-related re measures to include vaccines, which had already been uh, rolled out at that point. It has become de facto impossible to get a medical exemption for a COVID vaccine in the state of California. No physician will write them, even when you have someone that has a contraindication listed on the CDC's list of contraindications to COVID vaccines. I have a patient, went to, uh, went to her rheumatologist, specialist in her uh, autoimmune condition. This specialist told this patient, I don't think you should get the COVID vaccines given your age, your low risk of COVID, and I think there's a good chance that these vaccines, based on the data that we have, could worsen your underlying medical condition. She turned to the same physician immediately afterwards and said, can you write me, therefore, a medical exemption? Uh, because I need one for work. There's a vaccine mandate at work. Same physician that just told her not to take the vaccine or recommended against it said, no, I'm sorry, I can't write you a medical exemption because I'm afraid I might lose my license. Are you but telling me that patients who have known life-threatening contraindications that's to right. receive a COVID-19 vaccine indeed are that's not right. being given exemptions. So the medical boards are behaving very irresponsibly, doing the bidding of governors who want to impose certain mandates, in this case, mass mandates or vaccine mandates. Uh, they're not serving uh, the public good, in this case. They're not certainly not serving the interests of patients. And they are, I mean, again, in my entire 18 years of being a licensed physician, I and my colleagues have never, ever received any kind of communication like this from the medical board. Uh, it's outlandish. And to your point, Dr. Um, Cariotti, they never define. Exactly. They threaten yeah. you, and it's this looming threat without definition. You're spreading misinformation. Oh, do cite the papers in which I am you know, spreading misinformation. They will not define it. They will attack you. They will threaten you. They will put you in a state of fear and say, you can only do what we say, but don't save a life. And by the way, the vaccines are expired because Omicron is here. And I, now they still want to mandate them. So they threaten us and threaten us and threaten us. And we're hunted for caring and being compassionate and empathetic and wanting to help humanity. I want, I want, I want to correct one, one thing that Dr. Chiardi uh, said, which is there is one physician in California <clears throat> who will write a medical exemption and a mask exemption. There is one physician. I, 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 found I, I wouldn't name him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, believe me, he doesn't want to be named. Yeah, but, uh, but he is he is being investigated. Okay. So a little, little ahead of schedule, I, I see uh, Brianne Dressen uh, has been somewhat the spokesperson for some of the individuals that have been experienced injuries. So Brianne, why don't you to introduce yourself? For some reason, you want to address this issue. Yes. Yeah, so I'm Brianne Dressen. I get it close. I'm Brianne Dressen. I participated in the clinical trial for AstraZeneca here in the United States last uh, November. Uh, I experienced an extreme reaction that has changed my life. Even though um, I am sitting here before you today, I feel like I'm being electrocuted 24-7 and I can eat about six things um, and my body feels like it's made of glass. And you, by the way, you're also paralyzed from the waist down for length. Yes, yes. So I was hospitalized. Um, um, I was paralyzed from the waist down. Uh, I was incontinent, and uh, because of this, because I cried while I was in the ER when my legs weren't working, um, I was diagnosed with anxiety. So I was sent home with intensive physical and occupational therapy due to anxiety due to the COVID vaccine. Um, 
So yeah, but I was later able to go to the NIH and receive appropriate diagnoses after seven months, neuropathy, POTS, uh, things that are not anxiety. Yeah, and my name's Kyle Warner. Um, I'm a professional athlete, mountain bike racer, and I was injured by the Pfizer vaccine with my second dose. I developed the heart inflammation, POTS, and then a little bit of mast cell activation syndrome, which has also made it so I have limited things I can eat without just a big inflammation cascade. Um, I've also asked my primary care physician for an exemption four times. She's not able to write me an exemption. I live in Boise, Idaho, and yeah, the St. Al's network there basically told her, under no circumstance are you allowed to get an exemption. I'm worried about traveling for my job in the future. I'm not going to get a booster because if I do, I'm worried I'll have an issue. And one of my questions to the panel, too, is, is there a standardized exemption form out there now where people who do get an exemption can travel around the world? Because if I show up at the Canadian border with just a doctor's note, will that be good enough? We saw what happened in Australia uh, with the world's number one tennis player uh, who had a medical exemption uh, that, w that was supposedly accepted by the, the tennis association that he was a part of, but uh, the, the government entirely in a, a completely arbitrary fashion and to make an example out of this high-profile athlete uh, denied that same medical exemption. So unfortunately, there is not a, a uniform standard to acknowledge that some people should not get a particular intervention. There is no, there is no medication that is good for everyone all the time in all circumstances. It's an absurd notion. And there's no product that's safe for everyone. That's correct. At all times. And there were large numbers of individuals excluded from the clinical trials based upon concerns and appropriate concerns of safety, including right. pregnant women, women of childbearing potential who could not uh, guarantee contraception, COVID recovered, suspected COVID recovered, and those with positive serologies because the FDA and Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson Johnson, outside the United States, AstraZeneca, knew, they knew that these individuals, the products would either not be safe or not be efficacious. And the institutional review boards and the FDA who reviewed these protocols also agreed. In order to exclude a group from a clinical trial, the justification must be very strong. It is regulatory practice and principle, always, that groups that are excluded from randomized registrational trials are always excluded and contraindicated from the administration of the product in clinical practice, particularly during the early adoption and early experience part of the program. Without exception, we carry this forward. And the observation and the fact that the FDA and the CDC abrogated those regulatory principles and encourage actively uh, and through many mechanisms had others actually coerce individuals for whom the vaccine is unsafe to receive the vaccine and then incur fatal and non-fatal injuries is at this point in time, malfeasance. It's wrongdoing by those in positions of regulatory authority. And there is no, there is no stronger or clearer contraindication to a vaccine or a medication than having already been harmed by it. Mm -hmm. So being subjected to have to take something again that has already harmed you in order to live, in order to travel, in order to work professionally is criminal. Yeah, that was it's one of my insane. other questions. Kyle, 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 real quick, and then Dr. Yeah. Corey wants to say something. That was just one of my questions too. Is it you know, logical to think that if you've been harmed by the first dose, then you shouldn't get a second dose. And if you get the second dose and you're harmed, would the booster potentially do more harm? And if you were on the seventh booster, would that potentially cause more harm? Of down the course. Road? You don't have to be a physician to know the answer to that question. It, a four-year-old knows the answer to that question. And, yeah, and I just want to partner off of what Dr. McCullough said. I don't think people realize that all these people who had COVID were excluded from the trials, all of them. So we're going to take our five to 11-year-olds that there's 28 million. That means 14, it was about half and half. It's probably more 60% have had COVID already. 
So let's say 12 million have had not have COVID. So if those 12 million had the vaccine and it was a perfect vaccine, it's 0 0.1 per 100,000, we might sell 12 children. What's going to happen to the 16 children, 16 million children who haven't, who've already had the virus, who already have immunity, and we're going to subject them to something that wasn't even tested in that group? It's literally absurd. And that's the thing I would say, Senator, is that it's, we're not here about civil liberties and mandates. We're here to save lives. And this group of people should be excluded, absolutely. There's a, an Achilles heel to the program of natural immunity. Natural immunity denial should not be happening. It should be a, a, a major focus of what we're trying to do here because you're gonna harm, I don't know how many children by force vaccinating 16 million children. It's absurd. So, I, and, and we're, so we're gonna, I'm, I'm gonna get to, I'm, I'm going to get to medical necessity quick with Dr. Corey, then I've got to... I'm, I'm sorry to have to do this. I feel like a broken record. But I'm listening to my colleagues call out all of the inanities, the insanities, the absurdities, okay? These departures of our policies from what we know are to be scientific truths. These things like denial of natural immunity. We have to understand why. To sit here and point fingers and they're doing this wrong and that wrong, why are they doing this? There could be multiple reasons. The simplest and most easily understandable and provable is every vaccine, every these, these, you know, these novel patented high cost drugs is profits. They are putting profits ahead of patients. You know, we can call attention to all of these policies. They are non-scientific. They are, they're failing at having scientific support, yet they're being carrying out and they're being distributed across the country. And, and doctors and states and, and health departments are willingly accepting these without question, without critical thinking. And that's what I want us to be clear that we're calling attention to today. This is corruption, plain and simple. It's corruption. Sorry. I, so, so I want to echo Dr. Corey's statement and say that it didn't start now. Many people have been fighting this corruption for many years. When they did the 1986 Vaccine Injury Act and said that um, manufacturers no longer have liability for any vaccine that's on the childhood schedule, the childhood schedule exploded. Now, I'm not saying every vaccine is or isn't safe on that um, schedule, but I'm saying that's when they said, we have the perfect business model. Every kid has to take these vaccines if we put it on the schedule, and we have no liability. And so the schedule exploded, and um, safety corners were cut because we have no liability. And suddenly we started to see you have to have HPV for school. You have to have this for school. You have to have that for school. And so this business model, the more they pushed it, the more they realized no one pushed back because of this sort of idea that vaccines were always, always a positive health intervention. And so now we've gotten to the point where the mass formation psychosis around vaccines always being a positive health intervention has gotten us here. And so we have to look at that aspect. Why are they vaccinating our children? Because once it's on the vaccine, um, once it's on the childhood schedule, they are no longer liable for injury. So they're gonna get off that EUA, put it right on the childhood vaccine schedule, and then have no liability going forward. So I'm, 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 gonna, try, I'm gonna try and do this in an organized process. And again, I love, I love the free flow discussion, but let me just enter a little data into this. Because we hear you know, infection fatality rates, and we hear these infinitesimally small percentages. I, I turn those into numbers that I think are understandable, and they're, they're actually quite shocking. Okay, this, this is CDC's numbers, and then John Ioannidis in Stanford, uh, his numbers as well, they just, just got published. Um, but again, we're, we're talking about medical necessity and the stratification of the risk that we've completely ignored. And, and this puts in, I think, sharp focus of why we shouldn't have ignored medical necessity and the stratification of risk as it, comes, as it relates to COVID in general. So according to the CDC, the, the best numbers we have, if you're from zero to 17 years of age, about 20 of you will die from COVID per million, 20 per million, 20, two zero. If you're older than 65, 90,000 of you may die from COVID per million. Okay, so over the 65, 90,000 per million versus zero to 17, 20 per million. John Ioannidis' numbers are somewhat similar. 
as stark. Zero to 19, different age categories. Zero to 19, about 13 deaths per million. Over 70, 40,000 deaths. So where should have our response been focused? With children? Should we even, and let's face it, nobody, nobody can tell you the long-term safety profile of these vaccines. Nobody. It's unknowable because we haven't taken the time. Nobody knows. Again, my, my band chart would indicate I ought to have a little concern. With that lack of knowledge, it probably would indicate you ought to use some caution, but we haven't. Before I, I just have to tell, read you a quick little news story out of Vietnam. Just got this today. A ninth grader in the northern province of Futoh died Tuesday after getting her second Pfizer vaccine dose, the local medical center said Thursday. The girl had gotten her first Pfizer dose on December 3rd, 2021, after which she experienced dizziness and had difficulty breathing. She was taken to a medical center for treatment and later recovered. She had her second dose last Monday. Her mother told healthcare workers about the girl's side effects following her first shot, but they asked her to get the second shot anyway. Again, this is a ninth grader. Doesn't have much risk from COVID. Has a reaction to the first dose, but let's give it the second dose anyway. 20 minutes following the second shot, the girl experienced tightness in her chest, dizziness, difficulty in breathing and seizures. She received emergency treatment on the spot before being transferred to a district medical center. On arrival, she began to vomit blood, fell into a coma, and her heart stopped. Her family received news that she died Tuesday morning. Now, I guess this isn't evidence that a death might be related to the vaccine, but it certainly would concern me more than it's concerned Dr. Fauci, Dr. Lewinsky, Dr. Collins, Dr. Woodcock, Dr. Marks, I know one of your favorites, uh, Brianne. Um, this is reality. This is a reality that's being ignored by our, by our federal health officials, by the legacy media, by big tech. Senator Johnson. So I, I, just, Johnson. I just wanted to get that out there, um, Dr. Merrick. So, um, sorry. So a thousand times more likely to die from a bicycle than from COVID. So I think it would be appropriate that the federal government ban all bicycles because they're certainly more likely to kill you than COVID. Dr. Malone. Um, uh, thank you, Senator. So it's, um, we, we all feel good when we say these anecdotes and, and, we, it, and I appreciate the humor. We need humor to defend. But Senator Johnson, regarding, I'd like to touch on a couple of things. Regarding the age stratification, I, I, have, I was asked not to speak about this um, by Nancy Pelosi's office. But I had a meeting with them last fall and I specifically asked that they ask the CDC to age stratify. And uh, there was absolutely no action taken. So it's not as if the administration and the senior leadership in the House at least was not aware of this issue of age stratification. Point number two, the uh, issue of the vaccines and the vaccine mandates, the data are clear. The vaccines are not protecting from infection, replication, and spread of Omicron. And the data are relatively clear and emerging that vaccination is enhancing the risk of infection, um, replication, disease, and spread of Omicron. Can, There's no logic. Let, let me just quick stop you. Can you talk a little bit about the studies that are proving that? Because, you know, we've all been accused of spreading the, the on, misinformation, yeah. okay? disinformation. Can, yeah. can you? The Ontario data, Robert, uh, those, those lines we, crossed a couple of weeks ago. So in on, Ontario, we, Canada's highly vaccinated region, um, their public health data has shown for several weeks higher numbers of Omicron cases in the vaccinated as compared to the unvaccinated. And the response to that was always, yeah, but a higher proportion of the population is vaccinated, so we would expect to see maybe more breakthrough cases. But just, I think about two weeks ago, 
if you look at cases per 100,000, so not total number of cases, but case rates, uh, the vaccinated group was on a steeper incline, if you look at the curves, and those lines crossed about, uh, what, nine or 10 days ago, I think it was, where cases per 100,000 in Ontario, Canada, highly vaccinated region, are higher among the vaccinated than among the un unvaccinated. I think it's an open and debatable question whether and to what extent the vaccines are still protecting against more severe symptoms. Uh, but in terms of cases, there's more, there's more cases now and higher case so, so rates. So Ontario is one example. There's multiple examples from Northern Europe. There's examples from Scotland and the United Kingdom. And now I'm being asked to consult with the president of Israel tonight regarding what they're seeing there, where they've seen the third jab and the fourth jab are not helping. So, just, so what would be the physiology? I, I realize you don't know this, but why would that be? I mean, why? Because, I, I, again, being part of the doctors' groups, I've heard doctors talk about <coughs> this vaccine may misset your or inadequately set your immune system and maybe make you more vulnerable. I mean, there, there, I think there is documented case that there's a spike in COVID uh, cases right after the first dose. Where maybe, you know, what's happening? So, right? Senator Johnson, you're exactly right. And we call this confounding variables. And it's very difficult because there's so many overlapping things. Dr. Risch can, can speak eloquently, I'm sure, about the challenges of, of confounding in these large data sets. And we always have to be very cautious. But what we're seeing is a, uh, a risk profile that is a function of the number of vaccine doses. So you're seeing increased risk with one relative to none, and increased with two relative to one, and with three relative to two. And wh why would that possibly, can you, can you so, I, I, I told you guys not one to reason, can, can you speculate? One reason might be is because when they gave the mRNA vaccines, which are a form of gene therapy, it induces a very inflammatory response. They wanted to tamp down on that to prevent hyperinflammation upon vaccination. And so they modified the RNA in a way that changed the way that it interacted with our toll-like receptors. Our toll-like receptors are receptors that we have that basically take things like viruses, bacteria, and they coordinate an inflammatory response. And by coordinate, it's not a simple response. It's many different toll-like receptors integrating a large body of data and telling your body what to do. So it's important that they are recognizing the right molecule, getting that danger signal, and um, integrating the response. But we engineered these virus-like particles to tone down their response. And so now we have basically, there was a paper that came out, and maybe Dr. Cole has the reference for that, but that basically it's, um, mis, uh, it's, it's, it's basically changing the whole way the immune system works. So it's no longer as responsive to viruses, no longer as responsive to uh, bacteria and many other pathogens, because we've sort of like turned them off or turn them down, and we yeah, don't but, know how okay, long okay, that But you're way dead on the weeds. And that was Dr. Foss's study out of the Netherlands. So there's, We are there's, weakening there's, our there's, immune response chronically. There's four, there's four, four or five up. So, so we may be getting some disagreements, which is fine. Okay, I, I don't know what's I'm supporting her data, yeah. I've opened up a that's, can of worms, I can I mean, tell. That's some new data. It's somewhat speculative, but that would explain mm -hmm. some of the dose response okay. if you keep turning off those toll-like receptors, and it would also... Um, some of the anecdotal evidence that there may be more cancers because that's a surveillance. You're turning off that but, surveillance. But if I may, so, so if again, I may. Again, we, we, we're trying to do this for a layman audience. And again, I'm trying to say, now, this is, I, I did ask people to speculate, and that's dangerous, and I could be opening up a can of worms here. But I think this is an important discussion, but try, try and communicate it in a way that, like, okay, okay, I, let me, let me, so let me if I If it. I could have the floor for just a moment. Um, there's four or five different mechanisms, potential deep scientific mechanisms that range from suppressing your immune system to changing the behavior of people that are, are interacting with their environment. There's a range of potential confounding variables. And, and it's not, we don't need to go there right now, but the FDA absolutely, and, and my colleagues in vaccinology have long known that one of the great risks, one of the things that scares us most as vaccinologists is vaccine-enhanced disease. And there's a long history of vaccine-enhanced disease examples 
over time. Respiratory syncytial virus is the one that's often cited by my fellow vaccinologists, but there's many others. This is why we have to be careful in developing new vaccines. It's one example of why we have to be so careful and we have to be cautious about rolling them out and that we do the science. But in the case of vaccine-enhanced disease with coronavirus vaccines, this is a known complication. It's one of the reasons why I advised my group not to pursue vaccines when we got the call from Wuhan in, in January of 2020. Vaccine-enhanced diseases with coronaviruses has long been a problem. It has compromised every prior coronavirus vaccine development effort, it is including the veterinary ones. It's been overcome twice with licensed veterinary vaccines, and both of those are mucosal vaccines. So in short, this is a known problem. Many of us that are down in the trenches have been carefully monitoring for whether or not there are data emerging that suggest this problem might be occurring. And now we seem to be seeing clinical data that's consistent with that. But as Dr. Risch, I'm sure, will share, we have to be cautious because there are multiple confounding variables. Well, no, actually, the Public Health UK has actually published a statement about this in their week 42 uh, weekly report that showed that people who've had COVID and then get vaccinated have lower levels of anti-nucleocapsid uh, antibodies. And this means, and since the vaccines don't address the nucleocapsid antigens, they only address the spike, it means that they're doing something that's damaging the immune response in a more general way than just what they do with the spike. And this is empirical data that Public Health UK has published. So we know that this is happening. It's not a theoretical issue about all of the niceties of, of laboratory biology and virology of things that could happen. It's a real thing that's been really observed by their testing. So just, just, just real quick, this, by the way, is the kind of discussion that ought to be occurring within these advisory panels. Again, it's difficult for the general public to really understand, because I don't know exactly. Senator, what we, we have raised this in front of advisory panels. We've, I've raised it in front of the Israeli Ministry of Health. But uh, we've, we've, submitted paper, we've submitted written documents to CDC and FDA and all these issues. And, and all this, this, this stuff about negative but the, efficacy and, and, with Omicron. But they've been ignored. But yeah. David, I want to point out that the CDC and academic medical centers will say, and they will go to a home base, that they will say that the vaccines are associated with a reduction in hospitalization. And this will come up. The CDC in the last few days said there's five more papers showing the vaccines, even with Omicron, are associated with the reduction in hospitalization. But it's only in U.S. hospitals, not in South Africa, not right. in Germany, not in Denmark, not in the U.K., and not in Israel. Americans should be asking the question, why are the vaccines only working against hospitalization, but they don't work against binary occurrence of the respiratory illness or reduced spread, and they don't reduce mortality, but why do they only reduce hospitalization? And by the way, they reduce hospitalization in most studies in the United States by 85%. How does that happen? That is basically academic fraud. And the reason why it is, is because these hospitalizations are not adjudicated. They're not telling us why the patients are hospitalized. And we've had multiple officials come out and tell us that 40 to 60% of people coming to the hospital who test positive for COVID are not there for COVID. Yeah. So we have a trumped up set of numbers. And to make matters worse, our CDC has advised consistently that the unvaccinated get lots of testing and the vaccinated actually refrain from testing. So the combination of not adjudicating hospitalizations and this asymmetric testing is creating a fraudulent data uh, scheme in order to make the claim that the vaccinations are associated with reductions in hospitalizations when in fact they're not. And that's the reason why Israel is loaded with fully vaccinated people in the hospital with COVID-19, and so is Germany, and so is the United Kingdom, and elsewhere in the United States. We've known. So let me see Dr. Senator Johnson. I, I was talking to Dr. Corey about this, who has some experience in hospitals. Um, you were talking to me about the information system in hospitals as re relates to vaccinated status. Can you kind of talk about that? Yeah, so 
You know, this constant refrain that Dr. McCullough just pointed out to is that everyone in the hospitals is unvaccinated. Um, I believe that is manipulated data, and it's done, again, for the same purpose that I keep talking about. They want to vaccinate, vaccinate, vaccinate. Every vaccine brings profits. Now, how do they do that? In this country, when you log in to the most popular uh, electronic health record, which is probably epic, and I, I've been in numbers of hospitals throughout the pandemic, there's only two statuses a patient can have. They can either be vaccinated or they can be unknown. It, there is no category of unvaccinated, it's unknown. And it is my hypothesis, I cannot prove this, I believe that if you've been vaccinated within that hospital or hospital system, that vaccination record appears. If you went to a Walgreens or a Rite Aid or some private practice, I think it's highly likely it doesn't appear that you're vaccinated. I believe that they are artificially, with great purpose, they are hiding the fact that many people in American hospitals are vaccinated. Because Dr. McCullough just talked about why in the United States is the data here completely discordant from other countries and other health systems which are revealing the underlying granular public health data in, in a transparent fashion. Pierre, Pierre I, have the, I have the answer here. Here's a paper. Here's a paper. I'm going to read the title of the paper. The Food and Drug Administration Biologics, Biologics, Biologics Effectiveness effectiveness and safety initiative facilitates detection of vaccine administration from unstructured data in medical records through natural language processing. What this is, this is a paper from FDA that just came out in the last week or so. They're saying they, they've gone through and they've said that there's at least, at least a 16% non-capture of people who were vaccinated but are being called unvaccinated. That, that is exactly what you're saying. FDA are admitting it. Here's the paper. It's right over here. This is on the top of my list. What, what, what are the consequences of that? That means that all the data where they, 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 they've got vaccinated here and unvaccinated here, you've got 16% who are wrong in the wrong place. That means you've got a 32% imbalance is swinging the wrong way. FDA have just admitted that. I want to ask right Peter a question. All the guys, I want to make Peter, one more point. Yeah, go ahead. That yeah. I am absolutely exhausted about hearing about vaccinated and unvaccinated. There's only one category you need to care about. It's untreated versus treated. Stop with the vaccinations. Okay. On that. So, 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 okay. Because we mentioned hospitals, I can get this back on track because we, we really jumped ahead to vaccines and we got hours to talk about vaccine, vaccine, vaccine efficacy, safety, all type of thing. I want to polish off hospital care because I think it's extremely important. It's, it's certainly, it's certainly, as I'm hearing from people, some of those heart-wrenching stories I'm hearing where a loved one's in the hospital and they're, the, the family's begging the hospital to do more, tr trying to save the person's life. And they're just being told, now nah, you know, your loved one, there's not much hope. You know, get ready for the worst. And they just won't do anything. So I want to start the question out. What freedoms do you give up when you get admitted to the hospital? And is this a new phenomenon or has this always been true? Because it seems like when you hear, you know, Dr. Corey's well aware of this because he's involved in the lawsuits of families taking hospitals to court to administer, you know, one of the unnameable drugs. And even under court order, the hospitals won't do it. And, and the people just die. You know, I am the champion, I am the author, I'm the champion of right to try legislation, which gives patients and their doctors the right to try an unapproved drug. And yet, Americans haven't been able to access fully approved drugs with decades of safety profile. What has gone off the rail here? But so again, I, I want you hospitalists here, you know, the, the people that are actually probably using, misusing the term, has this always been the case? Have you always lost all your freedom? You Ron. just turn, turn yourself over to the hospital and you have no rights and you can't even sometimes get checked out? I know, I know Dr. McCulloch, you were just involved in the case, shipping somebody from, shipping, <laughs> sending somebody from a manufacturer, uh, somebody from Minnesota down to, I guess it was Dr. Verone. Let's hear, as, a, as an ethicist about, about rights. Patients. Physicians have always appropriately been granted discretionary latitude to exercise their own medical judgment. There are treatment recommendations from medical societies, from CDC, from all kinds of different sources. 
that we can take into account when treating our patients. But every patient is a new textbook. Every patient is a unique human being that has unique factors that only we and the patient really understand with sufficient depth to make difficult medical judgments. And this is the first time in my career, I think the other clinical physicians in the, in the room would agree, where I've worried um, about, is somebody gonna be looking over my shoulder asking me why I've prescribed fluvoxamine for this indication rather than that indication. I prescribed it for depression, no problem. Are you giving this to treat COVID? Why should it matter to you? Um, so it induced- So you're saying this is the first time in your- In the last two years. Is, is, that, is, that, is that true? The last two years. Now, there's, there, there are things that hospital administrators do that have annoyed physicians for years, but the kind of hamstringing of physicians in terms of doing what we believe to be the right and best and good for this vulnerable patient in front of me right now that is my only responsibility as a physician, this patient who has placed their trust in me as their physician to do what is best for them and not be, not be acting as the agent of a social program or a state program or any other interest that could compromise. So, or, so, so, so talk about the historic role of these agencies yeah. and the relationship to doctors and how did that change? And let's leave the pharmaceutical the, company capture of these things out, out of the equation here. They're, they are advisory. And the CDC is not the nation's super doctor. And I'm gonna scandalize a lot of people by saying the CDC is not a medical organization. It's a public health organization focused on infectious disease spread. And they can do modeling, they can do epidemiology, they can rec give, obviously, recommendations on that issue. But in terms of how to best treat this particular patient in front of me, they are not the experts. The CDC published a list of contraindications to vaccines that has been taken by healthcare institutions to be complete and definitive. The CDC never meant and would openly acknowledge this is not a comprehensive list of reasons to avoid the vaccine. Isn't, but, it, isn't it true that health agencies should be, uh, they should be working for the doctors. They should be providing you information. They shouldn't be dictating to you. And they should. They're, they're supportive yes, of your. Yeah. And that's a two-way street. They should be listening to doctors, the doctors on the front lines that see firsthand what's going on, that gain valuable clinical experience as things that were, that were tested in highly controlled settings with smaller numbers of patients are put out to broader numbers of patients, these agencies need that feedback from frontline front physicians. So it, it has to be a relationship of mutuality. And ultimately, all the work has to be for the benefit of the patient. Economic, financial, and other perverse incentives and other interests cannot play a role in these deliberations. Dr. Dr. Merrick. Yeah, so I, I can address this personally because this is a personal issue for me. So just to make the point that what's happening now is completely unprecedented in the history of medicine and across the world. We have the federal government, we have state agencies and hospitals telling doctors how to practice medicine. They're interfering with the sacred patient-physician relationship. They are telling doctors to be doctors. So I can tell you what happened to me. So I was using our protocol to treat critically ill patients in the ICU with a whole host of repurposed drugs. I then, this is a memo, this is a memo sent to the entire healthcare system, but they targeted me personally. And what did this memo say? This said, I can use remdesivir, and then I will quote, there was an added section, do not endorse section, which includes medications that may cause harm and efficacy is not supported in peer-reviewed published RCTs. These medications will not be verified or dispensed for the prevention or treatment of COVID. This list includes ivermectin, bicalutamide, etopsicide, fluvoxamine, dutesteride, and finasteride. And then just to stick it to me, they added ascorbic acid. 
<laughs> Otherwise known as... System was effectively Vitamins. preventing me treating my patients according to my best clinical judgment. And then how did this progress? I objected. So the first week I was in the ICU, I didn't know what to do. What was I to do? My hands were tied. As a clinician for the first time in my entire career, I could not be a doctor. I could not treat patients the way I had to be to treat patients. I had seven COVID patients, including a 31-year-old woman. I was not allowed to treat these people. I had to stand by idly. I had to stand by idly watching these people die. I then tried to sue the system, and you know what they did? They did something called peer sham review. It is a disgusting and evil concept. They then accused me of seven most outrageous crimes that I had committed and that I was such a severe threat to the safety of patients, they immediately suspended my hospital privileges because I possessed and posed such an outright threat to these patients. Ignoring the fact that under my care, the mortality was 50%, those of my colleagues. I then went on through the sham peer review. I went to a kangaroo court where they continued this, and the end result was I lost my hospital privilege and was reported to the National Practitioner Data Bank. So here I was standing up for patients' rights, and this hospital, this evil hospital, ended my medical career. So that's what they do. It's an outright outrage. It's evil to the core. What? Uh, why? Merrick, why, Merrick, why did they do that? Just one second. Dr. Merrick, did any of those cases that you were reviewed on, were they non-COVID cases? Were they pneumococcal pneumonia cases or staph sepsis where you used a broad range of your clinical skills? These were all patients with COVID. So it was specific to COVID not any other condition where you would use your broad range of clinical skills. It was only on COVID Absolutely. that I was the review was applied, and it was applied in a way that was basically expressing and advising therapeutic nihilism, which means for the American public, therapeutic nihilism means the denial of treatment in patients in need. This is the document which was sent to the entire healthcare system which is the COVID-19 Comprehensive Treatment Guideline, which specifically was targeted at me, preventing me from prescribing safe, effective, off-label drugs. It's unprecedented in the history of medicine. The hospital is telling me how to practice medicine. They're denying me the right to use safe and effective drugs and lying because they claim to be as you can use safe, effective, off-label drugs for other conditions outside COVID. Absolutely. Yeah. If this was pneumococcal pneumonia, this wouldn't be an issue. This is specifically for COVID. So, so, so let me ask the question, how, how has the hospital treatment of patients advanced, improved over the last two years? So, sorry to continue. So it's a terrible thing for me to say. I, I'm an intensivist. I've worked in the ICU for 35 years. Hospitals have become dangerous places for sick people. Patients must do whatever they can to avoid the hospital. When they imprisoned in a hospital, they denied their rights. They are not allowed a patient advocate. Their family are denied access to the patient. They are prisoners in the system. They have no rights, and they get the treatment dictated by the hospital. They are dangerous places for sick people. And that's, for me, as a physician practicing hospital medicine for 40 years, saddens me to the core. Yeah, there's two. There have been two. There have been two advances. One is they, many hospitals are finally using steroids and sometimes sufficiently dosed steroids against COVID. In the beginning, they, would, they wouldn't even do that, even though it's clearly an inflammatory condition in the lung when it gets to that phase 
of the illness. The other advance that was made in the hospital is intubated patients get turned over on their stomach. Prone position patients apparently did better on ventilators. Those that, that, that was actually really discovered very early on, correct? And they were discovered very early on. That's right. Um, another thing that patients in the hospitals and their families were denied was the basic human good of burying the dead. I don't know if uh, folks are aware of this, but in the early days of the pandemic, a theoretical risk that maybe a corpse maybe might somehow, even though it contradicted all known science on respiratory viruses, somehow still spread COVID. I mean, this is a very weird paranoid thought. Caused many health departments, with the support of the CDC, to refuse to give the body back to the family. The bodies were, um, the bodies were in, you know, incinerated, basically, and they would give you the ashes, whether or not uh, you, you, whether you wanted a, a burial or not. One of, the, one of the most painful conversations I had in the hospital, as the head of uh, the ethics committee, I had a lot of conversations with families whose loved ones were dying of COVID. And this was a case of a, a patient irretrievably, uh, at that point, dying of COVID. The family had finally come to accept that difficult reality that the patient wasn't going to survive the hospitalization. And then they asked about help for funeral arrangements. And the social worker told them, no, I'm sorry. Um, you, you know, <laughs> we can't give your loved one back to you. Uh, we can't give the remains back to you because the health department won't allow it. So this, this theoretical, nonsensical risk that obviously turned out to be false anyway uh, was placed above that basic human good of, of burying the dead. No, no sane society in the history of humankind since the days of Antigone has ever done this to people. So again, I want to just kind of do the timeline. Again, early on there was so much we didn't know. and We were all, well, Dr. Russell shaking his hand. No, that's not true, Senator. We okay. knew early on. We had treatment early on from the very first day in March. Yes. That's a, that's a fabricated lie. It's, it's scientific fraud to say that. There was treatment for inflammation. There was treatment for blood clotting. There was even treatment that we could try for the virus. There's treatment for respiratory demise. It was definitely but, but, options. But, 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 but again. And so as we went on, as he just talked, and I don't want to interrupt, but just let me kind of cover on this. The virus, respiratory viruses are gone in five to seven days. To say that this corpse could, could contain this respiratory virus a month or two later is ridiculous. So it's been a fraud from the beginning, and I don't understand why, but to go to just one more quick thing, the NIH, the CDC, and the FDA are not involved in medical education. We went through a residency of medical school, a residency program. We have colleagues, mentors, people that we rely on. I've seen 300,000 patients. I've never called the FDA, the NIH, or the CDC one time for advice. For advice. It's not who we call. So to have them dictate our medical practices has to stop. It should not ever have been done. We've got to find a way to fight back. The, the public knows that hospitals are dangerous places, like Dr. Merrick said, and we've got, to, we've got to reinvent the wheel, basically, because our current system is the corporate practice of medicine telling doctors what to do when we already know what to do. There's a nuance, and we know it. each and every patient has a slight potential thing that we might do differently, and if we don't do that, we are not we are not good doctors and so what, what i want to know is this completely a new phenomenon where the federal health, health agencies are are really dictating how doctors or or, or was this was this a slow creep? Uh, so I, historically just that? a quick history i'll let i'll let uh, pierre talk but the quick history is historically i was very closely aligned with the hospitals and it was more like hospitals and doctors we're, I'm the CEO of two major hospital systems were very good friends of mine in Houston. One was my next door neighbor and one was a good friend from medical school. Bottom line is we were with the hospitals. It felt like a partnership and we kind of felt like the insurers were the other side of things, like we were kind of us against them. But the hospitals started pooling together, they started building these big organizations and now they are the most powerful entity in medical care for us. 
And so we have so, to deal with so them. Again, so it, start, it started, this creep started with the consolidation of these hospitals. Correct. That, that decided, you know, this is how we're going to, through our hospital chain, here are the protocols we're going to follow. And why I, this is cost-driven, this is a cheaper way, I, to, you know, this is a more efficient, effective way. Can I speak to that for a second? Because I want to say that prior to COVID, I did see some of this starting to happen. I was a clinical leader in a major uh, US institution, an academic medical center, and I started to hear these echoes of standardized, standardized, standardized. So it was this push to standardization. Now, the, the problem with that is a patient is not a car. You know, hospitals are not factories. Dr. Cariotti <laughs> spoke very eloquently about that, that, that beautiful mystery of a patient and the phase of disease and illness and, and all their host of comorbidities and predilections and medicines. You know, it's a very complex problem that we have to solve. There is no standard solution. That push towards standardization that was beginning before COVID hyper-accelerated into some sort of totalitarian top-down control of the practice of medicine. Dr. Marek just spoke about it. The autonomy, the freedom, the liberty to, to make decisions using your decades of expertise and experience was removed. You were told to use this drug at this dose for this duration. I've never seen that happening. It's unprecedented. And I have to call out one particular point is if you want to talk about hospital medicine, how far we've advanced. My strongly held expert opinion, as someone who's been treating COVID in hospitals and ICUs for now almost two years, is that the proximate cause of death of nearly everyone in the hospital is the severe, persistent, and pervasive underdosing of corticosteroids. The standard NIH-recommended guideline dose is dexamethasone at a dose of six milligrams a day. That dose is less than I give my 80-year-old patients with emphysema who are wheezing. These are patients on ventilators, whited-out lungs with almost no gas exchange uh, capacity left, and we're giving them anemic and pathetic doses of steroids, and they die. They die and they die, and they keep coming into my ICU, and I look at their record of what they were treated with in the hospital, and they're stuck on this anemic dose of steroids. So why would that happen? Why would that happen? Why aren't doctors thinking and saying they're sicker and escalating doses? I don't know why. It's this totalitarianism. And I also, again, Senator, forgive me, I'm going to call out the C word again, the corruption, because it is my strongly held belief as an expert that this dose that was tested in a major trial, which made corticosteroids the standard of care worldwide, and I also want to, uh, I, I also want to give praise to Senator Johnson. You know, Senator Johnson invited me to give testimony in the Senate in May of 2020, and I remember my first conversation with him when he reached out. He was so, he was so um, enthusiastic about hearing about the work that Dr. Marek and myself were doing, that we were putting out protocols and we were trying to treat this disease. You know, and he said he couldn't understand why the system wasn't reacting, why the entire system wasn't reacting the way we were. And I, I remember he told me, he was, you know, I, I want the doctors to take their gloves off. And they're not. They were sitting idly by the bedside. Institutions were paralyzed, waiting for randomized controlled trials to be done. And then finally, a randomized control. And, so, and at that time, I testified to the world that corticosteroids were critical in the treatment of this disease. Nothing happened until a trial came out eight weeks later and proved the life-saving properties of corticosteroids. But that dose that was tested was ridiculous. It was the lowest dose. And the dose that's being used helps the few and fails the many. We now have almost a dozen trials testing higher doses of different drugs. We know, we have lots of evidence to show that methylprednisolone, which is another corticosteroid, is far superior to dexamethasone. We know that higher doses of that work better, yet the system just chugs on. And so it's my belief that low dose was tested for one reason, one reason only. I think it was a corrupt exercise, and I'll tell you why. And this corruption has now been well described. They fix trials. They, they can design trials to fail, to disprove the use of cheap medicines, and they can make things appear that they don't work. I believe that that low dose, which is perpetrated and propagated worldwide in the care of the COVID patient, was held artificially low so that they could re leave room for much more expensive and novel and patented cytokine blockers. 
so that they can enforce the use of more expensive and profitable medicine. And again, I'm just gonna keep doing it all day until the people listen, until we understand we can upend the system. It's a corrupt exercise. The practice of medicine has been corrupted. It's been co-opted and corrupted. And Pierre, mortality in the six milligram prednisone dose in the recovery trial was 22%, unacceptably high. The idea that we are gonna take six milligrams of dexamethasone and hold it out with a standard of a 22% mortality rate from a single trial is malfeasance. It's medical malfeasance. Any good doctor would use the principles of use of corticosteroids and find a more appropriate dose, as Dr. Merrick and Corey. S Senator Johnson, it's, it's very important on the why question to look at the way in which uh, the CM CMS, Medicare, Medicaid payment structures have created perverse incentives for hospitals and the hospital administrators looking at those reimbursements, the way in which uh, a COVID hospitalization was paid more than someone with the exact same problem, exact same symptoms than another hospitalization. So I go treat a 22-year-old woman who's in the hospital for suicidality and a positive COVID test. And so she's in isolation, has zero COVID symptoms, she shouldn't be on the medicine floor. She should be on the psychiatric ward. Uh, but the hospital's getting paid a lot more for that hospitalization simply because she had a positive PCR test. The same perverse incentives are working in terms of the novel drugs like remdesivir that were, that were ran through the approval process. Once Medicare, uh, once they go through the approval, and Medicare decides they're gonna pay for them, that becomes quote unquote standard of care. Third party payers, the private insurance companies will follow suit. So Medicare really sort of sets the table and sets the rules by which the hospitals operate financially and the other third party payers that, uh, that reimburse the hospitals follow suit. So and, until we can look at the CMS issues think we're, and, and follow the funding, I, I think we're going to be left scratching our heads wondering why are these institutions behaving this way. Okay, so I didn't know how this was going to go. You know, we, we had the room for five hours and I thought that might be overkill. It's not even close to enough time. It's not. And we, we haven't even really got to vaccine efficacy, safety, some of those issues. Uh, to close out this hospital thing, um, you know, the, the history of the fear is real. I mean, I, I remember the, the Chinese responders in their moon suits and everybody with PP, and I'm saying that wasn't unreasonable. We didn't know. I mean, maybe some people were more enlightened they knew, but I guess what I've always thought, and I, I need to point out, uh, you had a nice cushy job in Wisconsin, you know, uh, beautiful is probably about three below zero or something like that, and started, and you went, you went to New York, the hot spot, because you had the courage and compassion to treat patients. Uh, I guess I've always put my faith, and I've listened a little closer to the doctors that actually treated patients, and a whole lot didn't, which is why I asked you know, an ophthalmologist or a pediatrician that wasn't able to come here today. Also listen, also listen to the nurses who are the, all these, all these people are the heroes of COVID. And now, because of the mandates, a lot of them, let's face it, a lot of them got sick. Dr. Freed's sick, got COVID, because he had the courage and compassion to treat. They've recovered from COVID. They're now treating vaccine injured. There is no way they are going to get the vaccine. They will not do it. And yet now we're pushing these, these mandates, even though we know the vaccine doesn't prevent either infection or transmission, and we're still pushing it, doing a great deal of harm to our healthcare system, exacerbating the healthcare shortage. Dr. Corey pointed out, I guess we have a nurse um, that, that uh, would like to say a few words. Can you, can you come up and introduce yourself? And we also have a, a doctor here with the coat on that, no, that's but the gentleman that looks a little bit like Dr. Malone. <laughs> Good so please, please introduce yourself and tell us your story, and then we, we have to get to some of the vaccine injuries and some of the, because, go ahead. Yes, my name's Jennifer Bridges. Um, I'm, an, I'm, I'm still a nurse, but I was fired from Houston Methodist. 
I'm the one you might have seen all over the news. We were the first one mandated with a COVID shot. So I blew it up on the national media. We have a huge state and federal lawsuit because we didn't want to be guinea pigs. We saw for ourselves in the hospital people coming in with adverse reactions after getting the Pfizer shot. And the crazy thing is, is let me tell you a couple things about Methodist Hospital down in Houston, Texas. When they first started with COVID, I did that COVID unit on and off the whole time till they fired me in June, right? They started the first two months with hydroxychloroquine. They actually used it in the hospital. Then they cut it back real quick, switched it to remdesivir and all these other expensive drugs. And we're like, why? And we would ask these doctors, no one could give us a reason. They just said, well, the hospital policy changed, but they didn't know why. And you know, most